Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome to New Books and South Asian Studies. We are going to be looking at the nuts and bolts of empire today, specifically the fleet of ships that held together the early Dutch maritime empire in Asia. Robert Partisius has compiled an amazing database in his book, Dutch Ships in Tropical Waters, of every ship owned by the Dutch East India Company, that sailed Asian waters between 1595 and 1660. He is going to tell us about how the efficiency of the Dutch shipping network enabled them to gain an edge over their rivals, European and Asian, in terms of intra-Asian as well as Asian-European trade. Hi. Hello. Good Hello. morning. Good afternoon. Oh, thank you. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. And yourself? Yeah, I've just been going through the book, you know. It's uh, amazingly technical. I've never seen anything like it before. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, I must say you didn't pick the most easiest book uh, to start uh, reviewing, but, uh, well, that's what I said yesterday. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I... I'm sure that uh, the narrative around all this is, is much easier to tell than to read. Yeah, but I think this sort of thing is very much needed, you know. Because mm. a lot of historiography, it's like, you know, people just focus on the intangibles, but this was actually what, you know, was instrumental in creating and, like, you know, maintaining power in Asia. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, one of the things that why I did the research was that I was so annoyed working as an archaeologist in, in Southeast Asia um, and listening to the, reading the stories from Europe that they were always looking at the, the shipping wave between Europe and Asia and back. Mm-hmm. All the things that happened in Asia was out of the scope of, of the normal mm-hmm. research. So by looking at shipwrecks and systematically doing research, uh, I, I, just, uh, I discovered a whole new world and it was an unknown world for Europe and in most of the work I'm doing, I'm, I'm looking for the other perspective, not from the European perspective. Although I'm European and I always bring myself with me, I try to find the other perspective and starting to unravel that other world of the Asian shipping that was the first start. And for me, it's even now one step further and working in Africa and in the Indian Ocean region, I'm looking much more on regional shipping than on European shipping nowadays. Um, so, actually, could you just give us an overview of Dutch Indo-Asian shipping? Just a summary, you mean? Yeah, yeah, just, you know, to lead our listeners in, into the subject. How they actually got, like, you know, interested in how they actually perceived the need to build an Indo-Asian shipping network, you know, as distinct from the Europe-Asia thing. Yeah. Now, what I can do is, is just start with the beginning of the, the, the need of going to Asia. Uh, yeah. The Dutch developed uh, during the medieval time, as, as um, the late medieval time, as an important shippers of Europe. And at a certain point, they decided to take uh, the step towards Asia. And I can explain the first steps to go uh, to discover uh, how they organized themselves. And then next step can be that I, I explain that most of that history is known only through political and trade history and economics uh, and cultural but nobody thought about all the logistics that came behind it. And then we can gradually go through the differentiation of the fleet and the organization over there. And I'm sure we can fill a, a three-quarters yeah. an hour with it. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how are you, you? You're going to call me again, according to your instructions? And well, uh, yeah, but uh, this call is proceeding quite well, you know, and uh, your leading was really good, so we could even continue with this. Okay, yeah. whatever, yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you 
you say when we start, because what I understand is that you do it, uh, you, you record and that's it. You're not going to, um, um, let's say, um, how, how you call it, um, uh, edit the, the interview anymore. Um, well, not really because uh, your introduction was, you know, actually I think it would be very useful for our listeners as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't really feel the need to, like, you know, start a new call or something. But if you wish, I can just call you back. No, no, no. We can keep, we yeah. can continue. Yeah. I understand we have to switch off the video. Is that? Ah, uh... uh, yeah. But uh, the video isn't being recorded. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So yeah, you you just uh, uh, say when we start and then we start. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Go ahead. Okay. Well, do you want just just do you want me to tell a bit more about myself first? Um. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm involved actually in, um, in maritime archaeology and maritime history uh, since the, the 1980s. I, um, I always uh, felt, uh, well, probably I, I, I'm a sailor somewhere deep in my heart, so I always felt the attraction of the sea. And uh, first of all, I wanted to become an oceanographic uh, specialist. And, but that science was so exact that it was uh, probably not... Uh, into in my skills. So within a year of uh, hard labor as a student to try to do the physics, I decided to switch to history and archaeology because uh, I, I was more attracted to all the stories that came out of that. And but in no time I was back uh, at the sea and, and studied uh, the, the Dutch East Indian Company uh, for the Dutch um, history. It's an important period that the Dutch decided to sail from Europe. To Asia, they already in the 16th century were, were very famous uh, shippers in Europe. They were able to build ships that were ex- exactly right for the purposes uh, of the, the Dutch market, of the European market, I have to say. Um, and it was only the light, late 16th century that they had and the capital and the knowledge and the shipbuilding skills uh, to to start sailing to to Asia. Well, uh, as a student, I was uh, I was intrigued by that, that early history of, of people going to the other side of the world, setting up trade. And I became even more intrigued when I got into maritime archaeology and were able to work for a while in, um, in Australia, where for Dutch East Indian men wrecked. Um, and from Australia, I was invited to come with them to Sri Lanka um, to, to make an inventory on, on shipwrecks in the, the harbor of Kohl. And there we found two Dutch East Indian men. And so for me, that was at that stage of my life, the focus of, uh, of research. And um, so from there, I developed as a maritime archaeologist and, and still working now 20 years, 25 years down the track in many parts of, uh, of the world. We did programs in, in Africa and we did programs in, uh, in Asia. And for me, it was always interesting to see when you go for a dive on a shipwreck, that you see actually in other worlds than the image that you get in a Dutch museum. Go to a Dutch museum, you see the glorious times of uh, big paintings, big ships sailing to Asia, coming back with all those valuable cargo and people very happy uh, receiving those ships and, uh, um, and even the, the idea that our, our um, wealth, our golden age of the 17th century is entirely built on, on, the, uh, on that shipping is not really true, but that image exists. But diving, for instance, in Sri Lanka and seeing the real world underwater, um, I was intrigued by that other perspective. I thought, gee, you know, this is not the story that I heard in the Netherlands. The Netherlands, the only scope of Asia was that we were there for trade items, that we colonized parts of Asia, uh, which is the dark page of our, our history. Uh, but the way Things were organized in Asia was, was, was in, the, in the shadows of all this. So when I started to look at that other perspective, I, I was actually looking for the world behind that glorious world that we saw in those uh, paintings. And the uh, um, first thing I had to do is understand more of the development of how people uh, were able to sail to the other side of the world, how they organized themselves in the beginning and how they learned from, well, trial and error and built up something that was seen as 
very successful, more successful than the Portuguese and the English in that time. Um, so if we go back to the early stage, uh, the Dutch were actually quite happy in the beginning to just purchase their, um, their spices, because that was the item they were looking for, the spices uh, that were new for Europe and later on also the porcelain, uh, that very exotic items from, from Asia that came for many centuries overland, but since the Portuguese found the same seaway to, to Asia in the end of the 15th century, uh, also came by ship. And the Dutch were actually quite happy to go to Lisbon, Lisboa and fetch the spices, distribute them over Europe and make their money that way. They even had special ships for it to, to sail to all this part of, of Europe. Uh, but then in the course of the 16th century, the Dutch came into their own independent struggle. Uh, we were province of Spain and the Dutch novelty thought, well, no, no, we want to be independent. So they started their own independent war. And actually that blocked us to a large extent from that spice market from Portugal. Although we were still allowed to go there, there were all kinds of issues that the Dutch traders uh, couldn't get enough pepper to distribute over Europe. Uh, at a certain point, the distribution point in um, the northern um, part of the Netherlands uh, was uh, recaptured by the Spanish. So there were all kinds of issues going on, also religious I- issues. Uh, the Dutch were Protestants. Spanish were Catholic, um, that concentrated at a certain point at the end of the 16th century, the capital of rich traders that were Protestant, their knowledge, their trade contacts, and the ability to build ships to sail all over Europe, and the nautical skills that came with it. So at a certain point they thought, okay, we have the money, we have the skills, everything is the right moment, now is the time to go and sail to Asia. And those famous paintings that intrigued me in the beginning that actually showed a fleet of ships, big, very big ships for their time, uh, around them sailing smaller ships. Uh, they went sailing to Asia. First they tried to reach Asia uh, around um, actually the northern route, so uh, sailing north of Russia, but they got stuck in the ice. Uh, they tried to avoid the, the enemies uh, of Portugal and Spain on their way to Asia. And then after a while, uh, they, they were not feared the confrontation anymore and they sailed around the Cape of Good Hope, around Africa and arrived in, Af- in, uh, in Asia. And instead of going to India where the, the Portuguese had their stronghold, they thought let's go to uh, nowadays Indonesia to Java and see if we can pick up the trade there and sail back. Well, that was the first trip was successful in the sense that they, <laughs> they made it home. <laughs> But they lost ships, they lost a lot of crew, and they, they only bought enough spice, just enough spices to, uh, just enough spices to, to cover all their costs. Um, but at the same time, it was a success because it was proven that the, that the Dutch were able to build ships, send ships, and come home again with, with cargo. Um, and that they could evade the Portuguese. And that they could and uh, apart from building the cargo, yes. they also had the skill to evade the Portuguese. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And But at the same time, they landed in the reality of the Asian uh, trade market. They Maybe they had the idea that uh, they would land in a, in a land, uh, in a continent that um, had uh, all the opportunities that you can just read. But they soon def- this, uh, find out that um, they had to uh, just a trader in a big Asian network. And um, I think that one of the skills of the Dutch in that period was that they realized that if you want to be a good trader, you should be part of the system. And that's what you see in the beginning of um, of this uh, episode in the Dutch maritime history, is that they first sent uh, fleets of ships with, on board merchants, uh, well, a whole, let's say, a sailing circus of, of merchants, soldiers, uh, sailors, uh, a little world in itself, sailing to the other side of the world, landed in uh, on Java, tried to do their trade, uh, sailed on to the next place, tried to do their trade. And um, after, let's say, 10 years, they find out that it was not the, the cleverest approach, uh, just send ships and trying to get them back. So they decided to actually establish themselves permanently in Asia. And you have to keep in mind that in that period, 
uh, it was not an issue of colonization that came later. Uh, they were just traders. They inv- traders invested money and they wanted to have their return. They were not interested to, you know, bring religion uh, or uh, build up um, strongholds. The only strongholds they built up was for trade purposes. Um, so when they sent those fleets to the other side of the world, um, they also had to find out that the logistics to do that it was quite complex. Uh, sailing in Europe, that was uh, the trip was a maximum of a few months, but sailing to Asia, it meant um, that you have to uh, send ships for at least two years, and they had to equip those ships for at least three years. And um, and that was one of the first things I I I, I realized when I start doing my research also underwater, is that those ships look different than the ships I saw in Europe. They were much stronger built. Uh, they had all kinds of features that make them um, probably fit for a long trip uh, into the tropical waters. And um, you can see in, uh, in the research I did that uh, not only that they changed the system from fleets to uh, two systems in which you have a highway going from Europe to Asia, and let's say the Asian network it was centered around Java into uh, all those um, those parts of the um, of the, the shipping uh, required special ships. Mm. So, in your book, you mentioned the uh, different regions uh, where the networks primarily operated. Yeah. You know, can yeah. you tell us something more about them? Yeah. So, um, those ships sailed to the other side of the world. In Asia, they found out that it was not very clever to stay as a fleet together and go, let's say, to Java, then try to reach China, then to try to reach India. So, what they did is actually trying to look for a stronghold. And around 1610, mm-hmm. so that's 10 years after their first started to, to, to sail uh, to Asia, uh, they decided to have one person established. The first place where they went was uh, the Spice Islands, uh, the Moluks, uh, the eastern archipelago of uh, Indonesia. That was the place where they tried to bring to, to, to build their stronghold, the monopoly. And after all my nice words about that they were traders, they were also fierce fighters because uh, they wanted to keep a monopoly on all the trade products there, and they, they didn't avoid killing and, and, and atrocities. So the Dutch established themselves there, the Dutch East Indian Company established themselves there, but the, the problem with that location is that it is very difficult to reach. It's, it's, it's subject of the monsoon. So you can only reach it half a year, and then you can, half a half year, you can sail back to the, to the west. Um, so you could see that the political and military stronghold was in Spice Islands, but the logistical stronghold was on Java in, in Indonesia. And um, the complication there was that there were a lot of other people around, Portuguese, uh, the local people were very strong. So um, in order to, to build your, let's say, your your uh, entrepot of trade items coming from all parts of Asia in, uh, in that part was, uh, was a challenge because you had to pay taxes, uh, you had to as I said, the competition of the, of the Portuguese. So what they uh, did around 1620, they established, again by force, uh, a city. That was the big rendezvous for the whole network. And from there, ships were sailing all over Asia. Um, if you compare that system, where the Dutch sailed from Europe to Java, then from Java as a connection point, center point, to all the, the regions in, in Asia, um, that is a big difference than what the Portuguese did. The Portuguese sailed with big ships from Europe to Goa, and in Goa, on the coast of India, um, they collected all the trade items, and they could come only half a year of the monsoon, and then they could sail away again. And the Dutch were able to keep on sailing around with their ships the whole year round. And they were clever enough, but not even only collecting the trade items for Europe, they were also involved in the inter-Asian trade themselves. So they can actually they actually made money by trading locally also. And if you look, for instance, uh, if you look, for instance, to um, 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 well, 
the rhythm of uh, of such a monsoon year is that um, let's let's let, let's try to actually give an image of of how um, how this whole fine network of um, of shipping was constructed. As I said, ships sail from Europe um, twice a year. Um, they arrived between June and October at Java, uh, simply because they um, uh, they, they, they left. No, sorry. Let's let's look at this again. Um, what I want to actually tell the the, the listener is um, that there were two two systems. One system coming from Europe to Java that was yeah. the way. That were the big trucks sailing between two continents. And those ships arrived between June and October on the roadsteads of Java. You could reach the, the Strait Sunda the whole year round. Those ships had a lot of items on board. They had soldiers, they had extra sailors, and uh, they had money. That were almost the only trade items that were um, uh, that, that were of any use in Asia. All the other stuff we made in Europe, they were not interested, apart from some exclusive ra- rarities that the, the, the Japanese like to like to have. But the, the core thing that came uh, to Java was the money. So the money had to arrive in time, and then the whole system of, of the network started because the money was used to buy textiles in India. And yes, those textiles, on the Coromandel coast. Yes, Coromandel coast. And those textiles actually were the, the better. They were not the products that they sent back to Europe. Uh, those textiles were needed to buy the pepper, the spices. And, it is, and with you, uh, having pepper and spices, you could start trading with uh, China, with Persia. So it was a whole system of uh, ships and items that were... Uh, interweaven in, in a fine uh, network of it, um, that was um, um, in time and space. So the moment um, ships arrived in, in, in uh, Java, other ships were waiting for the money to sail to India to get the textile, to get the pepper, to get the spices, and get it all back in time again to the roadsteads of Java. And um, at the end of that year, so ships arrived at the latest in October, but that fleet was to be sent back again at the end of the year, so around December. And one of the complications with those ships were that um, they needed to be loaded very carefully. That means that um, if you don't, if you just put items on board, they will fall off. They will tip over and they will sink. So you first have to put ballast in the ship, then the bit more heavier uh, products, and then the, the light spices on top. And that was quite a logistic challenge for, for the, the, the directors over there. They had to um, um, they had to make sure that those ships that were waiting first got their ballast. Now the ballast came from uh, again from India, the saltpeter that was useful ballast. If they couldn't get the right ballast, they had to put stones in it, which was a bit. But that was a shame, of course, because you, yeah. sailing stone bags to Europe is not very useful. And um, so what they did at a certain time is they sailed straight from Java. They put those ships that were due to go back to to Europe. They sent on to Taiwan, and from Taiwan uh, back uh, with sugar as ballast back to Java and put the spices on top. And then they could sail back back to Europe. You also mentioned the use of rice as a ballast. Yeah. Um, yeah, what, what, um, say again? <laughs> uh, you also mentioned the use of rice as a ballast. Rice grains. Oh, rice. Oh, yes, yeah, yes, well, yes. that was actually, but that was only for the Asian yes. trade. Okay. If you look at, at if you look at the, 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 the problems with, uh, with the shipping in, in, a, in, uh, of being in Asia is, apart from having the right ship sailing at the right time to the right place, those places often need food. Uh, the Spice Islands, they were captured from the locals, and they needed a food supply. They couldn't produce their own food for all the soldiers sitting there, uh, guarding the monopoly. Um, 
If you look at Taiwan, it's the same issue. They they have a stronghold near China. That fortification needs food, needs soldiers. And so in order to keep that uh, logistics going, they needed to send those ships. So if you look at Taiwan, for instance, they first had to send from Batavia, Java, uh, ships to uh, Thailand to pick up rice and other supplies to sail to Taiwan pick up the, the ballast for the, for the ships at Java, but at the same time, if they still had space on the way from Taiwan, they had to pick up the rice again for Java. So the whole circle of, of food supplies and um, it was was quite a, a big issue, and, it, and the ships were, of course, uh, in the center of all this. It was the political organization, the economical organization, but the ships were, let's say, the, yeah, the, they, they kept the machine going. And what I what I did in my research was actually um, looking in more detail what kind of ships they sent to what kind of places in uh, in Asia, and that unfolded in a new world actually behind uh, the known world of the big ships sailing from Europe to Asia. Um, it gives an image of smaller, sometimes very very small ships um, sending sending back and forwards to, uh, to to locations in uh, in Asia. Um, so, what did the Portuguese think of all this? I'm sure they were not very happy. No, no, they were the big. Uh, no, <laughs> they're still not happy. <laughs> no, they they were actually the big competition. And um, what you see is that part of the um, of the, the work that the Dutch East Indian Company had to do in Asia was fighting the Portuguese. And the Spanish were only the Spaniards were only in the Philippines and a bit on the Spice Islands. But the big enemy were, were the Portuguese and. Um, ongoing story for at least the 17th century, if there was not a, a truce, uh, then, then we were fighting the Portuguese. And, and uh, again, for, uh, in the beginning maybe for reasons, because the Dutch state was in war with Spain and Portugal was connected with Spain at that time, but later on um, it was most of the time for, for commercial reasons. So what the Dutch, for instance, did, did was sending a fleet of ships to the coast of India, to, the, to, the, to the, uh, the west coast of India, to Goa, in order to block the Portuguese ships to arrive there. Yeah, they, half a year they could arrive on the monsoon, and then the other half a year they had to sail back to Europe. And the Dutch actually sent a fleet of ships to blockade them. And the Portuguese were, of course, very annoyed by that. Uh, but they couldn't help it because they were not, the Dutch were much more suitable, uh, suited of um, the Dutch ships were much more suitable for operating in those waters. And what they did was they blockade Goa, and then at the end of the blockade, they used those ships to pick up pepper from Malabar and to go to Surat and, and, and sail back. Uh, so they were very effective, and the, the Portuguese survived, uh, but their trade was much lesser than before the Dutch, Dutch arrived. And, and um, in that sense, um, uh, Especially in the 17th century, the Dutch were the masters of the Asian trade from the European perspective. So it's very interesting because in 1641 they managed to kick out the Portuguese from Malacca. Yes, and that was a crucial time. Actually, a crucial time if you if you actually need a map to to imagine the, the, the whole network. But um, if, if you look at where the Dutch were sailing, they had the the, the, uh, the routes to the Spice Islands from Java, but they were completely under their control. There were, of course, people crying, but there was no serious um, opposition there. It was around Malacca that they had problems with the Portuguese, and um, in 1641 uh, they were kicked out. They kicked out the Portuguese. Also, they kicked out the Portuguese from uh, uh, from um, uh, from Gaul. So they were from um, yeah. Sri Lanka, so it was very, two very strategic places where, from where the Dutch could build up their network of shipping. And you can then see that, if, for instance, there was a direct route that never existed before between the Far East up to Arabia. Um, till then, there were local traders going to halfway, and then they handed over the items to the next traders. The Portuguese were using that network to bring their stuff to Goa, but for the first time, the Dutch succeeded in having a straight uh, shipping lane between Arabia and the Far East. And that was only possible because of, of um, the capturing of Malacca. Um, 
one of the other in, in aspects of, of all this is that um, the Dutch had to have ships um, that were uh, suitable for all those purposes. So if let's say okay, we have a huge uh, trade network, a huge shipping network, you understand that they need uh, all kinds of ships. But if you look in more detail what the ship actually meant in that period, then then you have to then you have to realize that the ship was not only uh, a ship that was floating. It was in that time also an, um, a cargo uh, carrier. Um, it was also a military platform. It had to fight. Eh? The Portuguese were yeah. and So it had to fight. It had guns on board. And that gives European shipping also an advantage in that stage over the Asian shipping. Their, their ability to fight was much bigger than, than the, the Asian uh, competition. And just to realize that if a ship went from Europe, it often stay at sea for, for, for a year. And a small world of up to 300 people were living on a ship that was not bigger than 40 meters. And they had to feed themselves, they had to maintain the ship, um, they had to fight at certain occasions. And, and all those items together, in the beginning you could see that that created huge problems for, for the logistics. But later on, um, after they introduced all those ship types and, and were more knowledgeable about their own trade networks, um, you could see that uh, the Dutch find a very good balance between all those uh, logistical problems, better than the Portuguese and, and, uh, and the English could do in that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you mentioned how uh, they would often modify one ship to use for a different purpose. Once it was no longer fit for long voyages, they would like transfer it to shorter voyages or like hammer routes, something yep. like that. Well, they were quite stingy uh, Dutch. They still are, by the way. Um, and so what you see is they, they um, once a ship was in service, they tried to use it as long as possible. And they actually tried to avoid to make much cost uh, of the ship. And I, I still think a very famous example of that is when uh, one of the ships that is wrecked at, uh, in Gaul, that's the Dolphin, um, that ship sailed... Uh, for a long time in Asia and actually got uh, already uh, uh, damaged in a fight near Taiwan and um, but there was no time to repair and um, um, it was actually forbidden to repair it locally you had to go to Batavia or another location to, to make the repairs and this ship was sent to Surat, the other end of, of the whole network and um, there it was so heavily leaking that it said, listen, we need to repair. And the, the, the harbour master of the Dutch East Indian Company in, in Surat said, no, 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 we can't repair it here. You have to go to our stronghold in Gaul. There you can have your repair. So they sailed from Surat along the coast. And it was so heavily leaking that people were day and night pumping out the water. And they made a stop over uh, somewhere on the Malabar coast. And they tried to recruit recruit uh, local people to help them pumping. And those were, of course, clever, and they, said, uh, they could see the need. Uh, so they, they came up with uh, a big demand of uh, what they wanted to earn by sailing with the Dutch uh, to pump. And the local merchants uh, decided that that was too expensive, and the ship was sailed on uh, uh, to Gaul. And then it finally reached Gaul. Uh, they went for anchor outside the harbor, but the ship was so leaking that the people were so exhausted of, uh, of pumping it that when once the pilot came aboard and said, well, we, ha- we can sail into the harbor, the people were too exhausted to lift the anchor or even cut the anchor. And the ship actually wrecked behind this anchor because of the uh, people were too exhausted. And, and all because the Dutch East Indian Company was too stingy to repair it at the location that they had to pay for it. And um, so... Um, using ships in that Asian network um, was often seeking for the best uh, purpose. Have a ship that was strong and with a lot of guns, you could send it to locations where military force work was needed. But it would be a bit silly if you only sent a ship for military purposes. So they always tried to find a middle way between guns and trade. And you could see at a certain stage that once they uh, had a monopoly or the, the enemy was, 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 uh, was not uh, as active anymore, they straight away sent um, solemn uh, trade ships. 
without guns, or they always have guns on board, but but, but they stand a chance in a military confrontation. And and one of the big examples is there that that a ship that was specially built for the European market it was called the Flute. It was a very looking ship. At a certain stage, it came to to Asia because it could be used on 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 roads, uh, on, on 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 shipping lanes where there were no confrontations with enemies, and, and they were very efficient for, for, for cargo uh, trade. But uh, you could say that, that at East India Company could absorb the occasional loss of a ship. Well, uh, the issue with um, uh, those ships were, were, tra- were of, of course capital, uh, but at the same time, um, you know, um, um, they tried to use it um, as long as it was useful. And it surprised me, actually, that they sometimes sent off ships that I would say, well, all those valuable cargo, with a, a ship like this, you know, it's, it's um, in, in one occasion, even with the dolphin, as I just mentioned, that yeah. when it stopped off at the Malabar coast um, and they refused to send on people on board to help yeah. pump and they couldn't repair it there, they still gave on board um, uh, opium, uh, packages of opium to bring to coal. So, uh, you know, they thought, oh, it will be, it will be okay. You see, um, at a certain point, they had um, a need for cargo carriers between Europe and Asia. And um, there was too little ship space to send. And they, they buy very old ships in Europe. And they were only meant to sail from Europe to Asia, and then it could be, it could be disposed. They even sent the ambassador of uh, Persia on board of one of those ships. And I, if I were to be the ambassador of Persia, I would be not happy to be sent with a leaking old ship just to bring up items to the other end. And the only thing I can say about that also is that we often think about spices as, 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 um, as gold. You know, in the 70s they say, oh, pepper. But it was only that much money. The, the value was only... Uh, when it was in Europe, you know, in, in, in Asia, pepper cost nothing, uh, basically. Um, but once you ship it to Europe, then it became a very valuable car- cargo. But So you can easily waste a cargo of pepper in Asia, but it would be a disaster if it would wreck in Europe. Then you have made all those costs to bring it to Europe, where you don't have benefits. And there are examples that, they, that ships were really leaking, and that they actually had to go to Thailand, to Thailand bring on board all kinds of wood um, to keep the ship afloat, to sail it to Batavia. The wood was very uh, practical for repairs to the ship there, but a ship was solemnly floating on, on, uh, on timber rather than on its own, uh, own hull. So, um, yeah, sometimes you try to imagine how it was to be a sailor in that period, be on board of a, of a, of a ship that um, with 300 other people and if you if you were not a commander of course, <laughs> then I think you would just sail. Or even worse, if you were if you were a soldier, you were stuck away in the in the in the belly of the of the ship. Uh, examples that those soldiers uh, sailing from Europe, uh, st- making a stopover at the Cape, and those decks in the belly of the ship were not higher than one meter twenty, and those couldn't walk straight up anymore. They had to re. They had to, um, you know, train again to walk, to walk straight up. And if you were a sailor, and the food that they gave you was horrible. It was horrible. You know, um, I, I heard stories about um, people who were very happy to have a little uh, space in between the uh, teeth, like I had. Um, because then you could filter the water and the big animals would stick on your teeth rather than... Uh, so you can use your teeth as a filter for all kinds of animals living in, um, in, in your food. Um, but going back on, on the serious side, uh, is is uh, am I erotic about <laughs> But despite this, people were still willing to work on these ships, and you know they just thought they could make a profit, they could make money, you know, make a fortune. So they were yeah. willing to take the risk. Yeah, well, um, you know, especially those sailors, they came from all parts of Europe. They came mm-hmm. to the Netherlands to find work, and it's often said that if nothing else. If nothing else would work, you can always go on a, on a Dutchish Indian. But that's that's not true. I think that people, well, to start with, you had food three, three times a day. And if you're just, you know, uh, an immigrant from, from another part of Europe living in Amsterdam, maybe you don't have uh, three meals a day. 
Um, the, the life was hard, but they also, as you said, they, they sometimes felt that they could make a profit with some private trade. It was very restricted, but they could make some profit. Um, you know, and they, after they, they came back in Europe, sometimes after two or three years, uh, sometimes they never came back because they died or they yeah. had to build an, another existence in Europe. Um, they had money, you know, it's, it's yeah. other stories about a sailor coming back from, from Asia and he received all his money and he was so overwhelmed by it that he, he, um, he rented three car, um, three, um, uh, wagons, uh, one for his stick, one for himself and one for his head. And then he went partying for two weeks and he lost all his money and then he oh. had to <laughs> re-embark on the ship again. Uh, and that's that's partly true. The, the, um, uh, that's of course a funny story, and probably it happened. But most of those sailors had um, worked in Asia, and they had their family back in Europe, and they could go to the offices of the Dutch East India Company. And if the Dutch East India Company had a record that he was still alive, because that was of course essential, then they paid the money to their family. So it was. As you see a lot of immigrants nowadays, there's also a lifeline for a lot of families in, uh, in Europe. Um, but yeah, living on board uh, and on the tropical conditions, uh, well, you're, you're living in India and I'm often work, working in, in the your parts of the world. Uh, sometimes being in a city is not uh, as, um, as comfortable um, as it is um, in Europe for me. I know. It can be boiling. Yeah, on board of a ship. Cool. And again, if you're not if you're not on the right side in the sense of um, being the commander or having your own, then uh, life life was hard. I I imagine that um, we probably won't survive for a week uh, in our conditions nowadays. So, don't you think any of these people were just tempted to maybe like? stay on land, you know, like when they landed at a new port, you know, and they had all these like different sites, different towns. I mean, didn't anybody think about establishing a land-based empire? Yeah, well, um, that happened. Uh, it, once your contract was over, you you could establish yourself as a, as a free citizen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that often happened. Uh, mm-hmm. If you, for instance, go uh, looking at those many churches that were left behind by the Dutch. Also in India, many graveyards. You can see some people, you know, they, they, they built up an exist- existence in, in Asia. Even people, children of those people, you know, they were having a European name, they were Europeans, but they were born in Asia and died in Asia. And those groups, those little colonies, they were actually in the beginning, they were, Dutch East India Company didn't like that too much, because, because those people started to trade and they became competition. But there was a period that they tried to stimulate it, and there was even a period that um, they they tried to stimulate family, um, build up families, and to build up families. You need women. That's a bit of a, the, the the law of nature, um, and and that was quite a, another challenge because all those male people uh, stimulating themselves started to get relationships with locals, and. For all kinds of reasons, they were not very happy with that. Sometimes they were, other times they weren't. But basically, they thought we should have European families uh, forming our city, decent people. So they started they started to transport. Uh, sorry to, to use this word, but I think it's, it's the reality. They started to transport women. And they were, of course, not from the, let's say, the, the, the highest education and, the, and the, the sophistication that you would expect nowadays. So it was kind of a, of, a, of, a, of a cow market when they arrived in Batavia. All the mail were lined up and they could make their pick. And, uh, um, but they soon find out that all those, most of those women, they had their own profession. They were already prostitutes in, in Europe and they con- continued doing that. So that was not, not giving the standard that, that uh, the governors of the Dutch in the company were looking for. And um, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's um, some famous letters from that time indicating the type of women that they were looking for. They, of course, they couldn't find them as single women. So they started to transport whole families uh, instead. Um, um, but a letter from, uh, I, it was again from the Coromandel Coast uh, from the, the 1660s, 
mentioning in a letter back to them, say, oh, yes, we need more women, but please don't send us those old, old skins, as you said <laughs> last year. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, um, but, yeah, so, so Dutch, Dutch groups, but I have to say European groups, which most of the sailors were not from the Netherlands, but from Germany and from Scandinavia. And so European settlements started to build up. Those people started to trade. There and, and some of them, I think, um, uh, absorbed in, in, in the Asian society. And those traces are still visible, but uh, I find it quite interesting to see still groups. For instance, in Sri Lanka, the burghers, uh, they have a lot of intangible heritage carrying with them from, from the Dutch period. Yeah, there's not much presence, like, there's not much of a legacy of the Dutch on the west coast of India in Bombay. I mean, we are totally anglicized, I guess. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm soon will come to India, uh, mm-hmm. in a half year time, because we, the organization that are leading now, we are trying to build up a network of organizations that are um, involved in what I call the heritage of the European expansion. So those traces, print mm-hmm. that the Dutch, in this case, left behind. And on the West Coast, there are still, um, um, uh, there's not much, but there are, are several locations where the Dutch had the settlement. Cochin uh, uh, is such a location. And um, we have now eight countries that we have built up a network with. That's uh, South Africa, Suriname, that's a former colony, Brazil, um, but also Sri Lanka and Indonesia. And India is, is the other country, but we haven't, I haven't been to India yet to, to, to make an inventory on the, in that network. But at Coromandel Coast, there are a lot of uh, traces still. But India is, is not very active in, you know, they have, of course, a long history of colonization by, by, the, by the British. Yeah. And uh, you have so much other heritage that you're not that interested in European heritage. But there are people there are, uh, that are interested. But, uh, Robert, your study basically focuses on Dutch shipping. Would uh, you say there are any comparable studies about, let's say, British shipping or the French, you know, or the Portuguese? Have there been other studies done on this? Yeah, well, the, one of the issues with this shipping is that it is so specific that there are studies about the Dutch of the English ship, but the English ship was completely, uh, organized completely different. There were actually kind of a private uh, trade of people. They, they just sent a ship. When the ship made enough profit, it went back. That was okay. actually, and the English did it the way the Dutch did it in the, in the early period. Mm-hmm. Portuguese were, they were so convinced that they were the first, and they built up a strong thing, so they kept on sailing to Goa, they kept on being blocked by the Dutch uh, for a long time, and then come back. And this is all about the 17th century. In the 18th century, things changes again. Um, well, the Spanish were not involved in Asia, except for the Philippines. But you had a lot of Scandinavians, smaller sailing from Scandinavia in the same way as the um, the, uh, the British did, uh, French, but it was all on a much smaller scale. And the big difference is that the Dutch really set up the trade network in Asia. Uh, there was that was um, in the 17th century actually they made the biggest money not by sending the stuff to Europe the trade in Asia itself. And that makes the comparison very, very difficult because it's so specific what they do. Um, and so unique. And I was amazed when I started this study that so little was known. And maybe, just maybe, um, since I didn't study the British and the other uh, companies, maybe there's the same thing to be found there. Uh, but not yet in the literature. Uh, no, because it should be. I mean, you often hear about things like the British Empire was the greatest maritime power, but you need to look at what made it so. I mean, that's why I said, I mean, I think your book's very interesting. It's like seriously instrumental because it actually looks at, well, the tangibles, you know, behind uh, yeah. the European domination in Asia. You know, like, you just talk about the Dutch spirit of commerce, but then you've shown that was actually a lot of material things, a lot of concrete work and planning went into it. Yeah, they, they, the Dutch are famous. Um, I'm not Dutch. Uh, I am, I'm a Dutch citizen now, but um, sometimes I, I forgot that I that my family was not in the Netherlands uh, when this is happened. This happened. So, um, but often they say yes, the Dutch spirit of commerce 
was their success. And it, it feels a bit like a disease or something that you inherit. But if you look at it in detail, then you see that what they actually did was having access to information. By having a very fine-grained uh, network of shipping and trade, they also had the access to the information. If you were able to, u- to use your ship the whole way around, yeah, the Portuguese didn't do that, the yeah. English didn't do it, the Dutch were using the ship the whole year round. And like an airline, uh, airline, an airplane should be in the air, not on the, on the airport. Mm-hmm. The same thing with the Dutch ship. They should be in the water, sailing to a location to do trade or do other business, but they should not be idle for a long time in a harbor waiting for the, for the good wind to come. And, but apart from that, that, that profit, uh, it brought also a lot of information. So if I was amazed to read in letters that somebody sailing with a ship in, in uh, Persia, mm-hmm. to, to the Persian coast, and they could uh, buy uh, silk. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, yeah, this is a good price, but no, no, thank you, because I'm going to use my money not to buy the silk. Here I'm going to buy it in Bengal. Because the same quality for a lower price. I think, how on earth, in a, in, a, in a society that has no fax machine, no emails, no Skype, that they knew about a better price to be in, in, in northern India. And, and that was the big advantage of the Dutch system. They were not only, they had the right ship for the right route, for the right trade or activity, they also had access to all that information. And, I think one of the other advantages of that system was that although they were, uh, you know, no mistake about it, slavery, um, um, repression, killing, it was all part of the, of, of the deal, but the basic setup for the Dutch was trade, not colonization, like the Portuguese were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they only took land, sometimes reluctantly, like in Sri Lanka, and they took it over from the Portuguese, they had to take land, but they were not that happy with it. And that placed them also in a professional position towards probably the trades in Asia. They, they, they were operating on the same level. It was not that they came to dictate the trade. They, they had to show themselves uh, reasonable tradesmen and, uh, and traders. So, yeah. So the Dutch spirit of commerce is just, uh, to me, a good organization that gives them, gave them access to the right information before your competition. Um, so, Robert, how do you think uh, your research will develop in the future? What are your future plans? Yeah, well, as I said, I was, um, I'm was i attached to the sea, so I will stick yeah. to the sea, although my responsibilities nowadays are a bit wider. Uh, but um, I, I'm still having a lot of opportunity to be out in the field. And we just started the program. Um, we have several maritime programs. One uh, that I'm very fond of is from uh, Robben Island in South Africa. Uh, at the Cape, so halfway between Europe and Asia, uh, there's a new world of Africa to discover for me. We're working there now in Mozambique and in Tanzania, and we're working with local teams. Um, actually, because our, our, our vision on this kind of work is that you can be very interested in the subject, but if you just go there, study it, and move out again, then you never learn about the other perspectives. So we do our work from the university with training local teams, and they actually um, are invited to tell what kind of heritage they found important. So I'm not looking for Dutch East Indian anymore. I'm actually looking for all nautical setup and the maritime links of a certain place. And Robben Island is an interesting place because it was prison, not of past 30 years, but Mandela is the most famous prisoner. It was a prison island right from the 17th century. A lot of people in Asia were on Robben Island already. And that international connection made that place a magical place to work from. But looking at Mozambique, you have the whole connection with the Portuguese. That, um, uh, but at the same time, it has the whole Swahili coast connecting Arabia with the east coast of, of Africa. And that, that are much more interesting and much older connections. Even the Chinese connection is, uh, is recently found on the east coast there. So, I'm working myself now uh, a lot from uh, from Africa, uh, but we also have a program in uh, Hong Kong, uh, working with a Chinese uh, team, and um, well, we, we, we hope to set up something with um, with Indonesia. So actually, we're, I'm completely in, 
into the Indian Ocean uh, rim still, and I hope to, to do that. Um, but then from from other subjects than just the Dutch company, great company, very interesting subject. But for me, the horizon with all those local trade systems and and the Arabian connection and much older trade connection and shipping connection. That's that's really what I hope to uh, embark on uh, in the coming years. Um, that's very very global and it sounds fascinating. Um, <laughs> well, uh, we've kept you for a long time now, so I'm afraid we have to sign off. But uh, thank you for joining us today, and I'm sure like this is you know this actually brings your book to life. To be honest, it really complements the figures and the charts. So I'm sure it will be like really good for our readers to look at both together. Okay, <laughs> it was my pleasure. Thank you for uh, for having me on your this new initiative. It's uh, this is new for me that you 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 be interviewed over the internet about your book. Uh, that well, you often imagine that the people reading your book how they look at it. Well, this brings it actually closer to me. Um. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well. Uh, goodbye and thanks again. So, Fox, that was naval historian Robert Partizas talking about the Dutch shipping network in Asia during the 17th century. A very technical study that re-emphasizes the maritime character of the early European empires in Asia. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.